0: Uh... <laughs> Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc.
1: And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The
0: Trolltooth Wars. Now PJ, it's been, um, uh, it feels like a little while since we last sat down to record. In real time, yeah, it does. It does. Things got
1: busy. You had to go and, you know, go to a wedding, and then you had to go to a convention so
0: you could get COVID. Uh, Clarex, whoa, 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 slander here. No, (laughs) I did not get COVID at this convention. Thank you very much, Mr. Montgomery. (laughs) Uh, But I did get pinged. Uh, In fact, um, 75% of the uh, Big Punch team got pinged uh which sounds impressive there are only four of us um and lucy my my wife somehow uh completely uh avoided that which is a miracle we don't know how that happened uh but yeah we all got pinged but we've all tested uh negative on the pcrs but we are under house arrest at the moment so <laughs> so there we go uh which also leads into and i um we just talked about it off air but i want to bring it up for the benefit of the podcast um I think I think we've mentioned uh, at times in the past on the show how growing up, uh, kind of like you know, in if uh, you know you were in your mid to early teens like I was, or if you were just pushing forty like PJ was when hey series, when this hey series, <laughs> series originally came <laughs> out. Um, what a kind of ray of sunshine it was to see all these like fantastic, impossible, super heroic characters when you're growing up in like rural kind of middle england around that time mm-hmm. and i don't think there's a, there's ever been a better juxtaposition of these two places and worlds than the fact that prior to hopping on the air with you pj i was making cider at home as a as a rural hobbit that was how like i a, was spending my like good west country boy <laughs> mm, like a good west country boy i was making <laughs> i was making cider um, or attempting to make cider. So far, I've made apple juice. We shall see if it actually turns into anything. I mean, I like apple juice too. Yeah, again, well, it's like you It you either end up with cider and you've done it right, or you have some perfectly good apple juice and you ruin it. Like, you, you, you <laughs> never get to enjoy the apple juice, basically. Oh, that's a shame. Could you not
1: like just put it in a soda stream or something and make apple tizer?
0: You know that probably would that probably would be wouldn't have been a bad shout actually. Come to think of it, because I think there's still a more than fifty percent chance that I will have just ruined this entire batch of uh, <laughs> of um, of apple juice. On um on uh on our honeymoon, we went to uh, went to New Zealand and we went to um, Hobbiton. You know where all the hobbits live. I am insanely jealous. Well, it was very cool. Uh, there was also an incredibly weird thing where you get off you get off the coach with you know the thousands of other tourists who are there and you look at Hobbiton and you're like this looks exactly like the place I just left like this basically looks like the west country uh except it's like 48 degrees centigrade (laughs) and and it was like okay this is just like being at home except my skin is frying as I walk around um (laughs) although at the end you get to go to the um what is it the green dragon pub yeah, and you get a a glass of hard cider, Ooh. which is what we call cider. Yeah, was it was it a nice cider? It well, is I think at that point, um, I would have accepted a can of Strongbow to be honest. Like it, <laughs> uh, it did the job, PJ admirably. It was cold, it was crisp, it was refreshing. Uh, probably would have had another if they if they give me the option, but. Uh, yeah, sorry, that's a that's a fun side note. That's not JLA related at Wait, all.
1: So hang on. They only let you have one cider in the green
0: dragon, then they kick you out. it's a bit of a conveyor belt, I'll be honest with you. There's like there are a lot of coaches of people. <laughs> <laughs> they send they send you round in like little um groups of like twenty or so, and then they're, mm. they're like staggered. So you come in from the car park through the little lane where Gandalf first appears on his mm-hmm. um on his little car, and you're like, "Oh yeah, it's it's that bit," and the car park is just behind it, and uh, uh, yeah, and then I think you, you get your tour, and it was lovely. It was it was it was uh, it was charming. I feel like the the car park somewhat ruins the illusion there. Yeah, it's the magic of cinema. Like, thankfully, it was like just out. of They pointed the camera the right way. You mean <laughs> it was a it was it was it was a great day actually. But it's interesting where they took you on the tour because I guess they've yeah. got they've got to kind of make it like worth your money. And like uh, the first stop is a service station, <laughs> uh, but it's like a really fancy, like Lord of the Rings themed service station. So, oh, okay, you have my interest. So there's a, just like a ton of merchandise. I mean, like it's it's a merchant. It's nothing but merchandise, you know. But there's there's tons of it. Um, then they take you to Hobbiton, and just like an army of coaches where everyone everyone's going kind to of doing it. And it was it was great. Don't get don't get me wrong. And then after that, we our tour took us to. Um, completely unrelated but it took us to uh, uh an un- underground cave structure where you could like getting a little boat and go through a dark passage and and the the surface of the tunnel the roof of the tunnel was covered in glowworms oh wow it was cool it was really cool actually nice again i presume this was unrelated.
1: after the uh, the hobbit movies where they sort of built hobbit and then as a permanent
0: <laughs> like uh,
1: installation
0: yes this was only only a couple of years ago yeah uh, my understanding, the story they were saying, was that, um, apparent, oh, uh, oh God, who, who directed the movies? I can't remember. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson, yeah. Apparently him and the producers were in like a helicopter, like mm. scouting for locations. And they flew over the bit of land that would become Hobbiton. And they were like, oh, that's perfect. Let's go and disturb the owners. <laughs> and apparently there was some big rugby game on and they were like knocking on the door. And like uh, they didn't hear him because of the game, and I I think it's now like it's actually like those those farmers who own Hobbiton in a way mm. like I guess it's licensed or something, but like it's it's their land, you know. See,
1: I want to go to New Zealand to experience that, but I'm also scared of the giant monster spiders.
0: Ah, uh, and also like the wetters, like um, yeah, I think I saw one at Hobbiton. A wetter. I think I saw one. Yeah, like, or it could have been some other horrendous piece of like wildlife. Um, but yeah, there was like this weird bug thing, which was like it looked pretty big and prehistoric. And I was like, well, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna gloss over that and keep walking. I don't, I don't <laughs> like the look of that.
1: <laughs> you are listening to John and PJ travel <laughs> New
0: Zealand and
1: discuss the sets of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings.
0: <laughs> one day, PJ, you know, when when the JLA cast is uh, is massive, you know, we'll go, we'll go on that grand tour. I would be more than happy to do that. That would be amazing, wouldn't it, yeah. We'll kickstart it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Kickstart his... <laughs> a holiday for us to New Zealand. Here's <laughs> two guys with a, a, a low to moderately successful uh, JLA-themed podcast that only focuses on one era in history. And please allow them to go on a Hobbit-themed holiday to New Zealand. <laughs> we'll We'll record it. We'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah, you know, we'll talk on the plane. We've got, like, 24 hours on the plane. We could probably get through a lot of um, World War Three, you know, in that, in that time. <laughs>
1: yeah, we'll, we'll do the last episodes of the JLA cast on the plane, yeah.
0: Is there anything like, I mean, sorry, here's me kind of completely going off topic, but uh, is there anything interesting you'd like to talk about, PJ? Have you been making any uh, liqueur or spirits <laughs> or anything in your life? yeah um. I, I I'm going to be making burgers tonight. there's, a, there's a thing. Ah, well, you know, if PJ, if I weren't uh, if I weren't under house arrest and uh, <laughs> uh, I think more than an hour's drive away from you, I'd I'd be in the car right now, racing to get some of some of that sweet burger action. Oh, I'd have to go buy more mints I'm so sorry. Well, you know, Lisa can do without. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife doesn't need dinner. She can share. <laughs> um. PJ, um we have had a, a, a real explosion of fan mail, which a is torrent. which is incredible. Um actually no, is that is fan mail insulting to the people who wrote in?
1: Uh th- are they are fans or are they are peers?
0: I don't superiors, I would say.
1: Well, I mean they don't have a
0: podcast. Uh well, they might do, that we know of. Well, no. we don't. We don't know. That's the point. Um, my my point is, I wonder if like fan mail does create some kind of like um, power imbalance. Whereas um, once I would have said that we were the the authorities, unrivaled on everything JLA. Um, I I think um, I've learned that I'm very much uh, the student, still learning. Uh, I and mean, these emails have been incredible.
1: Yeah, we we've sort of put ourselves out there and and realized that there are people more knowledgeable than us, but. I would argue maybe we
0: are the more Entertaining We're certainly The first <laughs> I'll be honest with you that was one of my primary Motivations when, when we discussed like Doing this podcast I was like I cannot believe that no one else on the planet Hasn't done this So I was like PJ we've got to get in there Like quickly before better people come along And do a podcast <laughs> On the same subject And
1: now at least when a better podcast comes along We can at least sue them
0: Yes we can at least say that they're copycats, which will be would be amazing <laughs> um, but no um, thank you so much uh, to uh, David and Chris who've written in since the last episode because um, mm. it really has kind of been educational I'm, I'm not being um, facetious when I say that like it really it's like lots of like oh that's interesting kind of moments mm.
1: um,
0: should we uh, should we start with David's David's let's, letter? let's do it right now you this, this, this will make PJ very happy. Uh Starro-themed. Uh. um So, again, talking about the Endless, PJ. So, we were debating on air whether the Endless were part of DC continuity. And David has confirmed that not only are they definitely part of DC continuity, at least pre-New 52, which we can all agree post-New 52 yeah. is the wild west no one has any idea what's going on there <laughs> um but also marvel continuity as well
1: now that bit blew my mind that re- like i i think we had settled on yeah we're pretty sure they are dc continuity it's nice to have the confirmation and, and the other examples that we've provided <laughs> with here those these are fantastic but that marvel one
0: blew my mind and i'm pretty sure i've actually read that issue <laughs> well here's the thing though if you if um now obviously pj you've read this as well so um uh if I, if I, for the benefit of our other listeners, if I if I go through the email, yeah. uh, you can chip in with nogs or winks, well, I can't, I can't see either of those, but like an audio wink to say that like whether you've read it or not, because I, I reckon you're a very well read fellow and I reckon you probably have come across a lot of these.
1: The problem is, I read them a good twenty years or so ago, and this is going to come up again today, um, <laughs> and and do not remember them very well. But I will, I will try and give you those those audio winks, which is usually just me going
0: wink. Awesome. Okay. Okay. So, first one. Um, Death makes an appearance in Action Comics 894 or 894 in a fantastically well written story where Lex Luthor dies temporarily, and spends the issue talking with her and trying to cut a deal to be allowed to live. Now,
1: I don't think I've read that one. I don't think I was reading the Superman comics for that period, but I might be wrong.
0: I did a bit of, I did a brief bit of research off the back of this, very brief I have to say, and I suspect this is part of a tie-in with Blackest Night.
1: Ah, okay, that would make sense. Now, if that's the case, I was supposed to get it, but the comic shop I was using at the time was, let's say, sporadic with having <laughs> the issues I wanted, and I think I only got about half of Blackest Night in the end.
0: Isn't isn't it weird how um, being such a fanboy of the the Morrison era of JLA completely skews your view on the rest of like DC continuity? Because wasn't um Neron the big bad of Blackest Night. I
1: think so, but it wasn't the Neron from that two-part JLA story as I know and love him. I know. That's the
0: thing. When I think of Neron, I think of um, um, American Dreams. Yeah. And I'm thinking of Neron with this amazing head of hair, like a kind of 80s power rocker sort of thing. Uh, Whereas Neron got one of those sexy redesigns where he's like a, big black skeleton sort of thing yeah yeah maybe it was yeah he is a demon i suppose i guess he could look like whatever he wanted
1: here's the thing with 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 blackest night and sorry we're going off on on a slight tangent here i I like you know a lot of people mock it now but i did like the idea of the the emotional spectrum and the lantern rings of different colors i thought that was really cool but it all went on way too long and it got kind of tedious and then you know, so Sinestro, Core War, Blackest Night, Rage of the Red Lanterns, Brightest Day. And, and I was just like, can can we just have fun space cop stories with different colour space cops, please?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those classic examples, like, of a whole emotional spectrum thing, of being both an incredibly smart and an incredibly stupid idea at the yeah. same time, which I think is often where some of the best comic stuff happens where it's walking a very, very fine line between being ridiculous or incredible. Um at the same time though, a lot of it was masterminded by Jeff Jongs. Yeah. And I I do feel that maybe like um sometimes there's a slight lack of restraint um on his part as as a as a creator where I think once you kind of opened the door to there being like different coloured lanterns you're basically you're kind of starting down a train that can only end with you know black and white and i don't know you know what i mean like it, it just it was all it was all there was for a very long time they hit a very rich vein of lantern themed content and then they just kept mining it basically yeah did that make yeah. any sense
1: yeah, it does, completely. Also, with all that stuff going on, it sort of obfuscated Barry Allen coming back from the dead to the point where I was reading most comics around then and I read Flash Rebirth as well. I'm still not sure how Barry Allen came back from the dead. <laughs> Speedforce, PJ. Yeah, probably.
0: I know, and I think maybe that both of that ties into um, our, I mean, like you and I, like our general bitterness about um, Kyle and Wally being sidelined yeah. o- over the years. Um and sweeping a great deal of character development under the rug. <laughs> Just to uh go back to the uh the figureheads. Anyway, what's next in David's oh, email? <laughs> sorry, yes. Um <laughs> David pointing out that uh, remember that Vertigo didn't even exist when The Sandman started. The book was actually published under DC until issue forty seven when it got moved to Vertigo.
1: That blew my mind. Uh, yeah, I, that was weird. I'm sh- I was bowled over by that. I was convinced Vertigo. Like maybe the first 4 issues, but then issue 5 they bring in the Vertigo imprint. The fact that it reached the 40s before that happened oh, I know. made no sense
0: to me. I would I was convinced that um yeah, first volume pure DC and then volume 2 onwards. Oh yeah, it's got to be Vertigo. How could it not be? Yeah, that's uh, nuts. And now this is something the next fact is something which I'm fairly certain I did know but then I forgot. So um, Destiny, uh, the eldest sibling of the Endless, isn't even a Neil Gaiman creation. Uh, They were actually created by Marv Wolfman in Weird Mystery Tales 1, then reused and slightly reimagined to fit into the Endless by Gaiman. I think I...
1: Not only do I think I knew that, I think I've got a reprint of Weird Mystery Tales 1 somewhere. (laughs) Um, So... Yeah, that. but but I had completely forgotten until that email came through, and I haven't been able to find that copy of the issue that I have. I'm sure it's somewhere
0: in my house, but you I know get, how these things go. I guess in many ways it does kind of make sense, because uh, I'm going to get this wrong now, And uh, uh, Destiny it is one of the few Endless who actually has, like, human-coloured skin, as opposed yeah. to being, like, utterly white, or grey, or something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, uh, um. Uh, what else we got sorry Uh, yes and he also references the fact that Cain and Abel were the hosts of House of Mystery and House of Secrets before being pulled into the Sandman universe and I did know that, that's one thing I did recall
1: I didn't know that but I love it, I love when these companies have had these like horror hosts in the 50s and 60s. Obviously, the Crypt Keeper is the most well-known these days, but Marvel had a guy called the Digger as well, who was like a zombie with a shovel who was digging graves, as he oh, told you stories. Right. And then he gets brought into Marvel. I think he joined the Thunderbolts at some point. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Something okay. like that. Oh, wait, um, was that Busick? Uh, no, no. Um, I, I can't remember who it was. He, was either, he either joined the Thunderbolts or he was just in the Thunderbolts around the time Norman Osborn. Oh, so it would have been Warren Ellis, actually. Ah, uh, right, right, right. Um, around that time though but then yeah so the fact that Kane and Abel were DC horror hosts is not a surprise to me but is something that I utterly love
0: well the final kind of um, uh, jumping the publisher line here uh, he finally mentions the cameo that Death makes in Marvel saying that although you you never see her face uh, she apparently pops up during the wedding of Rick Jones and Marlo Chandler in The Incredible Hulk 418. Um, And he just goes on to say that that issue, along with issue 417, which is the Bachelor slash Bachelorette party, uh, are to this day two of the funniest comics uh, he's ever read.
1: I have read those, but it was a long time ago and I have absolutely no memory of
0: them. (laughs) My, um... uh, Because we've talked in the the past about... um, growing up in the UK and what access you had to American comics and uh myself collecting Marvel Heroes Reborn or whatever it was mm. called and it had the tail end of Peter David's run on the Hulk in it. Yeah. With one of the Kuberts, it was Andy or Adam? Adam. Adam. Oh, and I loved it. I love the artwork. I love the writing. And uh yeah, it was it was a weird period because it was kind of like uh Around that kind of original Thunderbolts, onslaught, the secondary bubble universe sort of thing, all through Hero's Return and then the stuff that happened afterwards. And yeah, I was a big fan of of, of those stories. I, I thought the writing was, was very funny.
1: It included one of my favourite Hulk versus Wolverine battles in the Savage Land where Wolverine... Wins because the Hulk is not quite himself oh, and then yes. Wolverine drags the Hulk back to the X-Mansion to recuperate oh my
0: god that, that episode oh sorry now now this another spin-off this, we can be talking about this will be our Hulk our Hulk fan cast but yeah that issue with the X-Men where Wolverine just takes an injured Hulk back to the X-Mansion and there's just this protracted scene where he's dragging the Hulk deeper into the mansion to get him medical care. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and He's just apologising to everyone at every step yeah. of the way. Oh, so good. Um, But yeah, Um, thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, David. That was incredible. Really educational. Yeah. And there's more PJ. Um, what? Now, uh, how would you like to do this? Because we've had a few emails from Chris here. Did did you want me to continue going through them, or did you want to g- go through them? We could alternate. Or,
1: well, you have them open in front of you. I do not. So you go through them in the order they arrived, and I will comment.
0: Okay. So, um, Chris Murphy, who at this point basically needs like a uh, a moniker or some kind of um, title. Um. Uh, the. He's our he's our monitor womb. Um. No, <laughs> it's a good start. There's an ice cream van in the background. Maybe that'll be picked up on air. I don't know. I can uh, hear it. Could we do something with the monitor? Could he be? Could he be the monitor? Just in general.
1: Yeah, that's a DC. Th- yeah, Chris is our Chris is the monitor, and Chris... then there's an evil version out there, the anti Chris.
0: No, that's... <laughs> no. So he's Chris the monitor and Murphy, and we'll, and we'll, which which, which I, I like the ring off, and we'll we'll save as an opening for an anti monitor. Never leave an
1: opening for the Anti-Monitor. No.
0: David's, David's a close contender for the Anti-Monitor, but we'll... we'll <laughs> okay. So, uh, Chris, uh, Chris for Monix and Murphy writes, um, Big fan of DC 1 million. I'm very glad that we uh, made it to this stage. Uh, and he's got a couple of things to add. Uh, firstly, uh, a bit of clarity on Rocket Red, who we did talk about. Um, and remind me, PJ, what was your kind of general familiarity and understanding with of and with rocket red
1: that it was a suit um or a series of suits given to uh sort of russian soldiers effectively to make them into russian sort of superheroes but the technology was a bit behind everything else that was actually around and one of them joined the justice league for a while in the international period Uh,
0: that was that was basically the beginning and end of what i understood Uh, But it turns out that, um, apparently, this comes from the Engelhart and Skaton era on Green Lantern Corps, where Kilowog, of the Green Lanterns, uh, suffering something of a uh, a kind of midlife crisis following the Guardians being disbanded, um, moved to Soviet Russia, uh, like you do, and he used his technological brilliance to build them a suit basically a uh, communist Iron Man, hmm. uh, like the Crimson Dynamo. And uh, the Soviets uh, mass-produced them into an army, identified by their number. And, uh, yeah, Rocket Red 7 joined Justice League Europe, but was replaced by the much-beloved Rocket Red 4. So there you go. There we go. And um, I have to say, this this is probably like the factoid of the episode, to be honest. Um Chris uh, brings up uh, a book, a 2004 book, called Writers on Comic Script Writing, which I'd never heard of, but apparently you have a copy of, PJ. Uh,
1: yeah, so, um, well, carry on. I'm, I'll come back to you in a moment.
0: Okay, now, there's an interview in the pages of this book with Grant Morrison, uh, or GMoz, as uh, as uh, Chris rightly Riley refers to them, um, and it talks about Writing DC One Million, and, and this was this was mind blowing to me. I'm I feel so ignorant when when I read this. Um, it says that Morrison plotted every single tie-in issue to DC One Million, not just for JLA, not just the core book which we're reading, but every single issue came from a Morrison idea and was plotted out. and And Morrison just talks about the the insanity of having to do that and like how much it took. And apparently the... Now, I've got another list from Chris here. Hang on a sec. Um, Yeah, so there were... I'm going to try and give you a rough bearing here. 38 issues associated with DC 1 million, which all came out around November 1998. And, uh, yeah, Grant um, um, plotted all of them, apart from uh, issue 1 million of hitman uh and um because he basically told um uh Ennis what's his Garth first Ennis. name Garth Ennis basically told Garth Ennis I'm not going to plot it just take the piss out of it and and that was the guidance um they gave to Ennis and uh yeah I was like, that, that blows my mind that's insane so um yeah
1: I do have writers on comic script writing uh for- first published in 1999 my edition that i bought in the year 2000 which is also the last time i read it so i couldn't find it i was like where the hell is it and was because i wanted to reread this grant morrison interview uh before we started today and i couldn't find it until i sat down to do this podcast and it turns out it's on the shelf right above my computer (laughs) right alongside writers on comic script writing two which was from 2004 by Tom Root and Andrew Carden, which is basically a follow-up interviewing a whole bunch of other writers. Now, I have skimmed the Morrison interview in my copy, and it makes no mention of DC One Million. Uh, it's not covered at all. So I don't know if maybe Chris has an updated version where oh, they publish weird.
0: more of the interviews or something. Wow, so not so not only did did Chris bring up a... A completely unknown factoid, but he also has some kind of limited edition, super rare version of a book that you own. That's that's. It just gets deeper and deeper.
1: Well, I know what you're about to say from Chris's email next, and that bit is in my book, so
0: we'll 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 get uh, to that okay. in a second. <laughs> so So uh, some interesting points from uh, uh, Morrison's interview are. Uh, as I kind of suspected, and I did know this, I feel, it did come from an, a Morrison idea, the very concept of going, what if we did issue one million of uh, of a series? And therefore, if we count ahead, what year would it actually be? Uh, which is, very, of course, very Morrison. Uh, but it does apparently come from a conversation they were having with Mark Miller uh, at a time when they still got on. Uh, where they were trying to come up with the most ludicrous thing you could do with a tie-in issue, and basically going like, well, if they already do zero issues, we've got to do a one million issue. And um, and the the other interesting thing, before we get on to the next bit, PJ, was um, the idea that, in Morrison's own words here, talking about their experiences of writing JLA, and how apparently... At the time it came out, they were getting a reputation for being a retro writer. Which is weird, because obviously we're visiting the series now with the distance of over 20 years. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, this is an incredibly modern, forward-thinking, very different take on writing a superhero title. But apparently, people were saying, like, well, all Morrison's doing is referencing old stuff. Ergo, they must be obsessed with retro stuff.
1: Yeah, it's weird because the thing I remembered most from the Morrison interview in in my copy is them talking about doing all the drugs and encountering all the aliens and how they were <laughs> going to swap
0: places with a character in The Invisibles. So, <laughs> yep. I, mean, I I mean I mean I, lo- I I love Grant Morrison obviously like but it's really only a matter of time in any interview until the aliens come in. Yeah. 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 Um uh, but yeah, now an int- another interesting thing is, um, obviously, looking ahead, we're going to get to some content featuring the Resurrection Man in in our upcoming uh, One Million Crossover. Yeah. However, I found this quite interesting. Morrison mentions the importance of the character Kronos, who is a time traveller, and I'm fairly certain that there is only a throwaway mention to Kronos in... The book I'm holding, yeah, yeah. Do you imagine that that kind of there was more going on in an individual tie-in issue or something? I didn't make it into the trade. Quite
1: probably, especially if Morrison did plot all of them. To be honest, the only one I've read that isn't in the trade we've both got is uh, Young Justice One Million, which is weird to me that Morrison had any hand in because it feels so Peter David, which is about the Young Justice of that time, which is Robin the Toy Wonder. a superboy who is sort of like an omac he he sort of looks and has the origin mm. of an omac and he's a clone of previous superboys and impulse who is just a speed force creature at this point finding uh, one of the original members of young justice in suspended animation and arguing about waking them up and then accidentally killing them
0: before they can cool yeah <laughs> yeah in fact come to think of it there's um there's a brief glimpse of an omac looking individual in one of the... I've just brought it up now. I think in the last chapter of um, the book I'm holding. So I don't know if that's meant to be that Superboy or not. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, PJ, sorry. Now, we were going to get on to the next point, which was Dan Juergens, or Juergens, however that's pronounced. I do apologise. Yeah. And you've, you you did know this one. You've, you've, you have read this quote before. Yes. Uh, but yeah, this is quite fun. So this is basically... Um, Uh, Dan Juergens, in reference to Morrison going on about having plotted, like, every individual issue, because this is just pure Morrison insanity, like, from the top down, uh, Dan Juergens being pretty salty about it, (laughs) basically going, like, um, why would you, I am a writer, why would you tell me what to write, basically? Well
1: uh this bit is in my version so i'm going to read you exactly what dan jurgens says yes go for it pj so it follows off there's a question about zero hour because jurgens was responsible was the the mind behind zero hour so they ask about uh what the what the idea with zero hour is how involved jurgens was with it and basically what he wanted to get out of it and then the next question is did you try to do on zero hour what grant morrison did on dc one million where he plotted virtually every single dc book that month here's jergens answer uh, in full i don't think you have to micromanage that way What I did with the tangent line is let people do their jobs. If you have a number of writers working with you, which I did on both Tangent and Zero Hour, you let them do the work since they know their characters best. In the case of Superman 1 million, I wrote a plot and it was a good story. And I rarely say that about my own stuff that I think would have worked well. It didn't contradict anything they had to say. They read it bounced it, trashed it, and I quit. That's why that issue of Superman was written by somebody else. They didn't want a writer, they wanted a trained chimp to sit down and type whatever they wanted. I don't work that way, I would never do that. I would never insult creators the way they did me on that project. It was one of the worst experiences I've ever had in this medium, and it's largely because of Grant trying to write everybody's book. If that's the way they wanted it, they should have just told everybody to take the month off. I know a number of writers who work on the one million books and we're quite put out by it. We're dealing with talented people here and I would never presume that I know better than they do. What I try and say on a crossover is, here is a key point to hit sometime during your story. Here's another one. If you have any other questions, please call me and we'll work it out together. But I would never dictate to people. Uh, it,
0: it's enlightening. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I, I feel like again it just goes into the general kind of mystery and weirdness around DC 1 million where you know as we mentioned like getting hold of like this missing chapter of JLA history at a much later date Yeah, and it's not complete it certainly doesn't include any of these you know frankly 90% of these tie-in issues are not included in this book Um, and it's just weird because it was apparently such a big enterprise and yet it's not really talked about. Even the fact, and, as you, the fact that Grant plotted them all like that's not really an open an open fact. I'd say, no, not at all.
1: And the fact that essentially this is what leads to the massive creative team shakeup on the Superman books because Jergens quits, and then. The rest of the team quit and you get this bold new era of Superman where they bring in like Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness and Mark Miller uh, and Mike McCone and and all these other creators who suddenly took over from these people who'd been on Superman for years. And now none of them are there anymore all of a sudden. And it looks like that's largely because of DC One Million and the way the creators were treated there.
0: Weird. Like, It's it's funny because I'm trying to kind of picture the the, the Grant Morrison of 1997 because Morrison I think by their own admission cultivated like a bit of a enfant terrible sort of you know kind of attitude about themselves in like the the kind of 80s and early 90s like um, that's very much why that big wedge was driven between them and Alan Moore because I mean like both part of the British invasion you know uh, kind of but they're both chaos magicians for crying out loud like you think they would be best friends or i guess kind of worst enemies but a lot of it is because morrison i think by their own admission acted like a bit of a shit and was like i'm new i'm punk i need to make my name by pissing off some people and i'm gonna i'm gonna piss off alan moore and it (laughs) you know it did and it's a weird thing because I think I think Morrison is 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 undoubtedly brilliant. I think and, but with that brilliance, maybe comes a willingness to to rub people up the, run, the wrong way or, or certainly at that point in their career.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know. It makes me feel like there was almost sort of they were trying to have an authorship about a crossover book, which is an odd statement um, but one you can certainly imagine a younger writer who was trying to sort of establish themselves and build a reputation for themselves sort of, and, and who had had that success JLA was a really popular book, it oh, sold really yeah. really well so you hand a crossover to the writer of that book and they may well feel entitled uh, to sort of try and control everything minutely
0: and, and and it's it's a bit of like it's it's a bit like the James Cameron situation where like I've heard it said that James Cameron, a lot of accounts saying that like he's a bit of an asshole. Mm. But he also makes very successful movies. So yeah. it's like he's 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 arrogant, but it's kind of backed up by a degree of talent. Like yeah. it's it's not like a kind of empty arrogance. Um now I think maybe 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 it wasn't intended this way, but I can see how kind of telling thirty-eight different creative teams that you'll be writing their, well, coming up with a plot for their story this month would probably rub a few people the wrong way. Um, but at the same time, it's like with the track record that Morrison had, you know, with the, they weren't exactly making, you know, they weren't exactly faking it. Like JLA was a superstar title; like it was, yeah. it was changing the way comics were were approached i feel
1: yeah definitely definitely and i think you can sort of feel the the ramifications of that for good and for, for bad today where it's big stories using the biggest characters the publisher has and that's something that back back in at this point it wasn't you didn't get so many you didn't have to have a crossover every year there were event books we're getting towards the period where it was every few months you'd have a a new one, but they weren't necessarily every year and you could ignore them. They wouldn't always hit every single book Mm. being published that month. Um, But yeah, obviously this one did and Morrison is largely responsible for this one and it's almost a template for what would come next. I think if you look at... I don't know, Civil War or Final Crisis or or Infinite Crisis, House of M. Mm. All of those follow a template that DC One Million very much sort of put down. A weekly, one central weekly book and then tie-ins for every title you're running that month.
0: One thing I find um, additionally uh, kind of interesting about that is is uh, Jürgens talking about how you know, quitting, and then saying, like, and that's why that issue of Superman was written by somebody else. Now, Superman 1 million is included in the trade we're holding. or certainly I'm holding. I think it's the same as yours, PJ. I hope it's the same as yours. Uh, no, mine has Superman, the man of tomorrow 1 million. Oh. Okay, well, maybe I'm getting confused then. I'll be honest with you, there's so many Superman titles at the time that uh, I find it quite hard to keep track. Um... Yeah, it's interesting because I, in all my reads of this trade, and we'll get to it, um, I always thought that was one of the weaker chapters. But it's interesting to know, because it's not written by Morrison, but I find it interesting that despite being, I feel, a weaker individual story, it deals with a lot of morrison's own future history for superman if that makes sense which has direct ties into all star superman so it's very interesting to me to learn that while morrison didn't write it they did plot it because i'm like this isn't a great issue but it's full of some big ideas which feel very morrison even though it's a different team so suddenly i'm like oh okay this kind of makes sense now morrison was there in the background
1: got a feeling and I might be wrong that that one's either written by Andy Lanning or Mark Schultz. Either Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning or Mark Schultz. They're the two writers on the front page that I can't really place on an actual issue.
0: Yeah, I guess, again, if we'd done our research a bit more we probably could have worked it out, but it's just in the nature of... The-
1: <laughs> we can work it out by the time we get to covering that issue.
0: Yeah, yeah we'll get there, we'll get there. But interesting. I feel like That really has kind of peeled back uh, a few layers on on, on this weird little event, which is I was just completely ignorant of. I'd never, you know, I'd never been, I'd just never been aware of it.
1: Well, I think it it also, it's interesting that we're actually looking at two issues today or one and a bit issues today. Mm. And going into this, realising that Morrison actually plotted these issues.
0: um, Nature's... Yeah, it changes them slightly. Yeah, it makes you kind of look at it in a slightly different light, actually. The um, the final thing I'll, I'll say uh, very quickly from Chris. Um, Chris, being something of a, a pioneer, has actually vowed to track down and read all tie-in issues of DC 1 million in the correct reading order, uh, which he very kindly provided a link to, uh, and uh, which is just, you know... More power to you! Like you know, once you establish a colony in this brave new, this brave new land you're exploring, you have to send a boat back for us or something because that's that's amazing. Um, what is it? Thirty-eight comics. Thirty-eight comics.
1: So if if we did that on on this podcast, it would take us well, P- how long to cover the whole PJ, event? Do you know like what?
0: Seventy-six weeks. Well, PJ, do you know what episode number this is?
1: What episode number?
0: Thirty-eight. No way. Yeah. That's yeah. Exactly. Good. No, it would be our entire run again. Just to do DC One Million in full. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. No, Chris, you start your own podcast, and uh, we'll listen, <laughs> and we'll send you. Yeah. Uh, we'll send you mail. Uh, we'll uh, any- we'll come and guest star
1: on your DC One Million
0: weekly deep dive podcast. <laughs> anyway, 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 I should say the final amazing gem that uh, Chris, uh, the Monica Murphy, kind of dug up, and thus save me the effort, is the missing, the missing two pages from the end of JLA 23, which is the final part of the Starro storyline. Mm-hmm. And again, never collected in the trade, had no idea it existed, and we only worked it out through context clues, where in the previous issue of um, DC One Million, Superman says that, oh yes, we all remember the just the, the Justice Legion A from the future. They arrived recently and the asterisk goes CJLA issue 23. Yeah. Missing pages that I have never seen until now. Um and you've seen them as well now PJ. Uh, I, have I? I forwarded I thought I sent them to you. Oh, let me check my emails. You know what? If I didn't, this means I can genuinely surprise you. Um, oh
1: no! They, uh, yeah, you did forward them to there me. There we go. Uh, I haven't downloaded the attachment yet. <laughs> it's all right. It's
0: all right. So basically, it is. It, I've got to say, it doesn't add a massive amount, but I'm glad I finally got to see him. More lost Morrison content. Uh, we open on uh, what's well, Epilogue Two uh, after Daniel has uh, kind of um, chained um, the Scaros. Uh, we are on the uh, Justice League Watchtower where. We have two Wonder Women.
1: Oh, one month later.
0: Indeed. Um, the only scene, I feel, where we ever have both Diana and Hippolyta in the same panel, in the pages of JLA. Um,
1: no, I don't think it is. Is it not? Cry- uh, crisis times five.
0: But, no, yes. Wait. But where's Diana at that point? In the JLA. Antipolis is there. In the JSA. Now I'm losing my mind. Okay, well <laughs> I believe you, PJ. I just I honestly am just suddenly struggling to picture what Diana.
1: There's a four part JLA-JSA team up, Crisis Times Five, involving imps from the fifth dimension that has both Wonder I, Women in it.
0: I remember I definitely remember that. I just cannot remember what Diana's role in that story is. Like genuinely, like my mind is blank. <laughs> I remember Hippolyta being there. I do not remember Diana. But I but I trust you, PJ, because you know these things. Um but yeah, so basically we have Diana resuming her role on the team we have hippolyta leaving and uh they they it's basically a very very brief scene where she says you know i'm not i'm not sure i ever want to be a superhero again and frankly my daughter looks much better than i do in a swimsuit uh and diana is very embarrassed by that yeah well you would be and and also they do look kind of identical They do. They really do. I mean, seeing them in the panel here, maybe their hair is very slightly different, but not by much. No. (laughs) Anyway, not much really happens, basically. Um, They say goodbye to Hippolyta, and then Jean gets a, a weird kind of telepathic feeling that someone's approaching. And then we just get a big shot by Howard Porter of Justice Legion A, And John Fox, the flash of the future, simply says, we're Justice Legion A, we're from tomorrow. And it goes, continued next month in the crossover event of the ages, DC 1 million.
1: Never seen those before. That's very cool.
0: No, it's weird. (laughs) I mean, I can see why they didn't include it in the trade. At the same time, weird that they didn't just include DC 1 million in the JLA trade paperback continuity. (laughs)
1: It's, it's weird that they didn't do what they did with Rock of Ages as well, and just put those two pages in the very front of DC 1 million, perhaps, like they did the, the, last, I- the last couple of pages yeah. from the last issue of American Dreams.
0: Really weird. Really weird. But there we go. Thank you, Chris. I mean, incredible. Um, we certainly got a lot of content out of it today. <laughs> um, but PJ, um, where the hell are we? Sorry, what are we doing in the pages of uh, 1 million?
1: Well, in our trade, we've got a recap page, which is just a bunch of text telling us what each member of the JLA who's travelled to the future uh, for these fun games to celebrate the return of Superman Prime is up to. So we it's basically a list. Uh, on Earth, Superman faces the challenge of the perfect solids, matching wits with android geometrons primed to counter the Man of Steel's strength and skill. Like uh, you do. Like you do. Uh, On Pluto, Batman cheats death in the caverns there. Basically, he's got an obstacle course designed to push his agility and escape past history to its limits. Wonder Woman fights a bunch of Amazons on Venus. Uh, Aquaman, and I I, I wish this issue had been included in the trade, to be honest. 5,000 metres beneath the oceans of Neptune, Aquaman demonstrated his amazing aquatic abilities to citizens of sprawling city ships. I want to read that one.
0: Have you read any of
1: these? No. Ah, okay, okay. Not a one. Uh, on Mercury, the Flash basically has a race. And then we get this one. Past distant Uranus, aboard the space citadel of the 853rd century Starman, Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, willed his way to a powering fueled victory in an interstellar chariot race against the solid-light Mac Turtle. Mm. Unfortunately, all of their challenges ended abruptly in chaos, sabotaged from within... As the heroes struggled for their lives against host worlds who now believed them monstrous bizarro duplicates, Kyle returned to Starman's Citadel to learn a dark secret. And then we cut to basically the last four or five pages from Green Lantern 1 million.
0: Yeah, um... It's weird. It's weird... It's very weird that they just added that kind of text dump to the trade. Like... It surprises me that they didn't go all out and kind of bind a bigger book with more content, but I guess they just didn't want to. (laughs) You know, that's all I can think. Yeah,
1: I mean, not even... There is an omnibus that prints everything out there, but if you're going to reference these things and give that rundown, maybe just... Yeah, just include the issues for the characters who went to the future. You don't have to put everything in there. Or
0: or maybe, like, just... Don't include that text dump. Like I don't yeah. think it necessarily adds anything at all.
1: Yeah, but yeah. So then we jump straight from that to these last five pages from Green Lantern One Million, written by Ron Mars, without by Brian Hitch, um, and it's it's just straight into the middle of a confusing <laughs> scene where Kyle's <laughs> leaping through a star shaped portal,
0: going, "Oh, I've won!
1: Mac Turtle's fallen apart. What's happening? Where is everybody?"
0: We should say this is no fault of the creative team. This is simply the way it's been gathered yeah. into this trade.
1: Oh, completely. I, I, I love Ron Mars's run on Greenland, and I think it's brilliant. Um, and I think it's a shame we don't get this whole issue.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we, as you say, PJ, we just get this weird collection of maybe like, what, one, two, three, four, five pages, um, which is really unusual. Uh, but yeah, so we, we have to believe, based on the text we've been provided in the trade... That Kyle has just beaten a solid light Mac Turtle. Like like you do. Yep. And um Yeah, and then suddenly he gets attacked. There's a power cut, and he gets attacked by a bunch of giant alien monsters, basically.
1: He refers to Starman's menagerie that somebody called Bob has mentioned. No idea who <laughs> Bob is, but apparently we don't need to know. And Kyle basically just puts them all in bubbles, so they're not going to kill each other or
0: him. Yeah, I mean, Kyle, a little sniffy about green bubbles occasionally, but, you know, if they work, they work. They have their uses. They have their uses. Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, Kyle's like, okay, I guess I need to get the power back on. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have a big problem when the heat and atmosphere run out. Um, as he points out, he says he he's carrying a pretty amazing power source. He just needs to find out where to plug it, basically.
1: Yeah, so he just starts travelling through Starman's citadel past a hall of Starmen, which are giant statues of previous Starmans, Starmens, <laughs> star star- people,
0: st- Stars, Starsman.
1: Starsmans. That's for plural. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he finds himself at the power core and basically just makes a Star Trek reference about Scotty, I need more power, while he blasts it with his ring.
0: Yeah, I mean, just... Doing his thing. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, don't really know what more to say. Um, but he um, he points out that uh, his power battery is sitting back home in the past, and you know, if he runs out of power, he can't recharge. But he does it. He uh, he's able to uh, jumpstart the energy on the uh, space station again, and uh, yeah, the lights come on, and he he basically flies. Around what looks like a big holographic display, maybe of um, Solaris, the uh, the the Tyrant Sun, and just says this place is uh, quite impressive.
1: Yeah, realizes he's basically now at Starman's command post, and oh, all of a sudden the last incoming message transmission that was being made to Starman Citadel is resumed and hits two Starman from Solaris and it says plans proceed, the Justice League from the past has been summoned and suspects nothing, they will be taken completely unaware by your betrayal and with your aid, I'll have my revenge and Green Lantern just goes, "Starman, selling us out
0: dun, 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 dun. The end well, That was a very quick issue of uh, Green Lantern uh, PJ?
1: It's, I... I don't understand why they did this this way (laughs) because we get a full first issue and then we get five pages of Green Lantern in which it's revealed that one of the main characters is a traitor and that's very sudden. We don't know Starman at all yet, this version of him and now all of a sudden it's like, but he's the bad guy. There's no attempt to even have that be a secret that's played out for a while and I don't know. It just, for me, it's a bit... And I think it might just be the structure of the trade Rather yeah. than you know, if, if we'd read a lot more issues before we found that out, great. But we it just straight
0: in. Starman's a traitor. It's 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 hmm, it's like a symptom of these kind of the nature of this sort of crossover, isn't it? Because you have to assume, one would imagine, that not every reader is going to read every tie-in issue. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm sure editorial would love people to do that. But they're probably not. They're probably not going to fork out on buying, like, you know, 30 more issues than they normally do. So one would assume that the core storyline has to be carried just in the pages of the the main crossover event book. You know, so... Yeah. Sometimes when I'm reading this, I have to say, I do skip over a few of these kind of tie-in storylines. And... I guess the story still makes sense because we, you know, obviously we we kind of learn at the end of the previous issue that like Solaris is a uh, a tyrant, but again we never really get to know Solaris when they're not evil, so it's not really like a betrayal that has too much weight. And and then of course, as you say, we're get we're about to get into all this kind of baggage with Starman, of the future, who's a, who's a character we we've we've only just met as well. It's it's um. Not a criticism of the books, more a criticism of the decisions they made when assembling this collected edition. It's unusual.
1: It makes me think of... um, I remember reading about an argument that happened in the Marvel Writers' Retreat when they were plotting out Civil War. And it was an argument between Mark Miller and J. Michael Straczynski about whether Peter Parker unmasking as Spider-Man should happen in the pages of Civil War because that's the main book that people need to read for the story, or if it should happen in The Amazing Spider-Man, because that was the Spider-Man book. Mm. And it came down to, we need the story to be understood by people who aren't necessarily buying The Amazing Spider-Man, so it's going in the main Civil War book. And other examples that were given in that argument were like, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Supergirl's death happens in the pages of Crisis on Infinite Earths. It doesn't happen in the pages of Supergirl or a Superman book. It's in the main book, the main story. And I think that is a thing with crossovers. If you're doing a crossover, you can't have key story points be revealed or happen in the tie-in books, because not everyone reading the crossover story is going to buy all of those. So maybe that is a one million misstep and the way it's presented here just highlights that.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's a perfectly fine issue in its own right. Again, just raises the question, why did they think it needed including here? Mm. Because what does it add? I, practically nothing, I would say.
1: If anything, it adds some pacing issues.
0: <laughs> that That is true, actually. A very, very unusual decision. Um. And yeah, and I guess we run straight from that into Starman 1 million into into this kind of second-issue quotation marks that we're going to be looking at. Um, I guess the thematic connection is that we open, once again, on Starman's flying space station Citadel thing in the future, so that's the link, maybe?
1: Yeah, and you can see Solaris in the background, and there's, there's some narration captions that basically go on about name, my name is unpronounceable, I'm the size of a city... And I'm not sure if this is Solaris themselves
0: or the space station talking to us at this point. I think it's the space station, because it does say I am an orbiting citadel. Yes, it does. Okay. But again, not that it really means or kind of acts anything, to be honest. Um, yeah, and it's basically, it's being narrated from the perspective of the space station, which Kyle was just in. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it. I don't know. I don't really know. There's not much to say. I feel.
1: I think it's basically the space station moping, going, "Oh, I miss Starman."
0: Yeah, and and then basically it just says because Starman isn't here, and then you know because he's gone into the past, which we which we know, and so we we jump into the past or the present day, and um, we're in Opal City, where. Um, the original Starman, who is now an elderly man, is being attacked by a, uh, a a villain in his observatory, like you do.
1: Yeah, and he's, you know, the I can't remember the villain's name, he's going to come up in a page or two, but he's attacking him with blasts from his hand. The old school Starman is just shooting back with a, an energy gun and... The assassin gets the upper hand when all of a sudden, Starman One Million shows up.
0: Yeah, and um, um, you know, again, I, I I always get the names of the original kind of JSA members confused, but this is Ted Knight, the original, the original Starman, and he is rescued at the last minute by Starman One Million, so the Starman of the future. Who I'm going to I'm going to be honest with you, I really like his design. I know, I know I know it's stupid, but I, I like I like his, his funky cape and his helmet and Yeah, me too. And, and the Quavat which he holds.
1: Me too. And uh, you get this So I think because we talked in our last episode about Jack Knight, the Starman that DC brought in in the late 90s, who just wore like a leather jacket, goggles and had a staff. So I'm guessing they had launched his series at that point because I know James Robinson wrote that and this time we get the title and credits, All the Starlight Shining, James Robinson's story and words. So I'm guessing this came early in that Starman run and then the, the rest of the credits. So Peter... Snedbjerg, sorry Peter, is the penciler, Wade Von Grawbadger is the inker, Bill Oakley was the letterer, Gregory Wright was the colorist. GCW was colour separations, Peter Tomasi the editor and Archie Goodwin, the guiding light
0: yeah and um, I'm a I don't know, I'm a bit of a sucker for Starman if only because I know so little about him I've never really read a Starman book I know there have been like 18 different Starmen over the years, often with completely different powers, completely different lineages. Some are aliens, some are humans, some are completely unconnected to the others. In a way, I like Starman, because a Starman is is another one of those great, iconic hero ideas that DC does so well. Uh, and yet, I feel like Starman is very much like an also-ran. like um, Definitely not one of the big leaguers, and yet could have been in an alternate reality perhaps maybe
1: i mean starman was big enough in the 40s to be put on the justice society Mm. so way back when he was clearly a going concern i'm going to be honest none of the starmen really do much for me i've never had that much interest in in starman as a character i enjoy it when he shows up in in crossovers and team-up books and things but I've never been tempted to go and check out any solo adventures of any of the iterations. If I'm being honest,
0: um, Mark Wade and Alex Ross have a lot to answer for as well, because in the pages of Kingdom Come, when they had the future Starman of a different future, not this future, not the uh, do don't, don't think about it, but a, a future Starman turns up in a costume designed by Alex Ross, and it's awesome and the entire world just looked at that and was like what if we started putting, bear with me right, what if we had a character who was like completely black all over, like they were wearing like a kind of black unitard sort of thing and what if there were like stars inside their body and basically everybody and their mom was like, this is the hot new character design, let's all do it I've done it like you know, it it, it just <laughs> and again we see it here. Like it, it looks amazing when with obviously Alex Ross kind of painting it, but um, and
1: some of us just went, "Oh, you mean like Captain Universe?"
0: Yeah, yeah, but like <laughs> Captain <laughs> Universe was more kind of blue, bluish. Oh, yeah, all right, I'll give yeah. You that. <laughs> I don't know, Starman from Kingdom Come just looks amazing. So much so yeah. that I think DC found a way to shoehorn that character design into the main continuity, because they were like, this is too good to ignore.
1: That happened with a few of the Kingdom Come designs, as I recall. But uh, anyway. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, but sorry, PJ. Yeah, so um, there's a multitude of Scarmen here
1: now. Yeah. And, you know, this this villain basically goes, I don't know you. And Starman says, no, nah, you're not going to live long enough to do so either. Oh, I don't mean I'm going to kill you. It's just that I'm from so far in the future that you'll be dead. Woohoo! And takes him down.
0: Yeah, and... Um... It, yeah, and the only kind of because I guess this this guy would be horrendously outclassed by Future Starman, yeah. and um, but the villain takes a blast at uh, at the original Starman, and uh, Future Starman goes, "Father, look out!" and uh, this side of the observatory is kind of blown open, and uh, yeah, because I guess because Future Starman was distracted, that um, yeah, the villain escaped. Basically, Deathbolt. Deathbolt. Yes, I, we're on that page. I've just we, seen it. We Death were both. Bo- I mean, I know that makes us like terrible hosts for not doing our research, but like he's so boring. Like as a villain, like he's just so inconsequential. Uh, also,
1: this is just my thing where I, I'm just not that interested in Starman, so <laughs> I couldn't get excited about this issue enough to do any further reading or research. um
0: But yeah, so basically, Deathbolt uh, escapes. Uh, Starman of the Future uh, apologises and uh, the original Starman, Ted Knight is I've got to just call him Ted Knight, it would be easier Ted is like, well why are you apologising? You saved my life, you know um, you know I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, that's more important and uh, he goes like you know, why did you call me father, you know, is it because I'm you know, the father to ev- anyone who becomes a Starman down the line?
1: Yeah, and Starman of the future says uh, well, yeah, but also I'm Farris Knight, your
0: direct descendant. And uh, he takes his helmet off and we see that um, his hairstyle perfectly matches his helmet. It's it's a Wolverine situation. <laughs> it's also like, I imagine if he ever needed a haircut, he could just put the helmet on and kind of like trim around the edges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, um, uh, so yeah, so basically, um, of course, the Justice Legion A from the future, they arrived in the past or the present day, however you want to look at at it, and it was like a big media event, like, you know, the newspapers were covering it, so of course, uh, Ted Knight was like, well, I'm glad you came here because until that guy tried to kill me, I was basically thinking like, oh, I would hop in the car and try and find you because... I'd like to talk, I suppose.
1: Yeah, there's also a vague reference here to uh, Jack Knight, the current Starman, being off in space at the moment, that's so why he's not in this issue. Uh, and Ted saying, I'm going to have to find out who hired Deathbolt later, but that's a Trump problem for another issue that the presenters of the JLA cast have no idea if it ever gets
0: resolved or not, and certainly one of them doesn't really care. Uh, yeah, and... Um... Yeah, so they basically just chat about the legacy of... They chat about the legacy of Starman. Um, you know, um, Ted Knight is like, oh, I see you have a cosmic rod as well. Um, which I feel, again, just going into my obsession with heroes who didn't quite make it to the big leagues. Um, in DC general continuity, something like the Starman's cosmic rod could have been like up there with the Green Lantern powering. Uh, it didn't really, but he's like, "Oh, you have a cosmic rod." He's like, "No, it's uh, it's actually called the the quavat," you know, <laughs> yeah. like you do. I
1: I was using terms I I thought you'd understand, and Ted's like, "Oh,
0: thank you." And uh, yeah, I think at times it's been called the gravity rod as well. like yeah. I know that much at least. Uh, so yeah, we're just having a chat, and you know, all we're basically really learning is that. There was about 3,000 years where there wasn't a Starman, and then future Starman's, like, great-grandfather found the Quava and started up the legacy again, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and the Starman before this Starman was his mother, who was still Starman rather
0: than Starwoman. Yes, and... Yeah, and again, if it is having a chat, basically, there's there's not been a massive amount of detail to bring up. And other than um, uh, Ted offers Scarman some coffee and basically says, I can't drink it. Like, you people are so primitive that um, it could basically poison me. So, sorry. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then they go outside for a walk instead. And. Ted asks more questions about Starman and the lineage, and Starman says it's not always been a hero's name. There have been villains as well. Two of them, in fact, were in but you know, your descend my descendants, your you know, your descendants, my ancestors. That's how it goes. Mm. Um a bad seed in Jack Knight's genes, apparently, which makes no sense, but there it is.
0: You know you know we're gonna get caught up on that. <laughs> yes um, i do yeah and I that's it's... fine but they go for a walk uh under a starry sky um it looks quite pretty i'll, I'll say that yeah. and um uh yeah and uh basically says that you know um by my time in the future nobody remembers jack knight the current starman, man and ted knight does go um i think i'll keep that fact between us
1: I do like uh, where he lists some of the star men of note. So you get Danny Blaine, Tommy Tomorrow 2, <laughs> Liz Rue, and his grandfather, Kale Knight. Not to be, you know, that's not a knight made of the delicious vegetable, but,
0: uh... <gasps> and, um... Yeah, the the Kale Knight. Uh, <laughs> I think he was in Shovel Knight. Yes, indeed, yeah. I was going to say Dark Souls as well. Um... <laughs> But yeah, and he basically says, you know, you are more remembered, Ted Knight, for your work as a scientist rather than your time as Starman. And, uh, you know, compares him to like Einstein or Galileo, uh, S- Sotinwa, And he goes, oh, uh, I guess you haven't heard of them yet. Uh, uh, she's, I guess she's probably still a young girl growing up in Africa, which is quite a fun little detail.
1: Yeah, and then... Ted says, so you came to meet me, and Starman says, well, I I also need something from you. You have a green ore sample that fell from the sky and I would like it. And I I do like this sequence. You get Ted Knight saying he'd almost forgotten about it, and you get a, a black and white flashback panel of classic golden age star man fighting the icicle and he says oh, i was back when i was still wearing green and red i was fighting the icicle next panel no wait i'm wrong it was killer wasp and it's the same panel but the icicle has been replaced with killer wasp but i just like that little detail
0: and a little storytelling flourish it is a nice little touch and uh basically yeah a random meteorite falls into the ground in the black and white days and uh he said it was very radioactive so i, I just kept it in case in in red in in lead sorry and he opens this box in the present day and uh there's a g- great green glow coming off this rock and
1: look we all know what this is no pj already i don't pj i don't Star know our a traitor they want
0: to kill superman prime it's a big old hunk of kryptonite pj it might not be kryptonite it could it's be it's a anything. big old hunk of kryptonite Anyway, so Ted Knight is you know, a very trusting fellow and he goes, uh, well, you know, do you need this to help defeat the Hourman Man virus that all the news stations are talking about? Because again, with the weird pacing of the way the trade has been assembled, it, we kind of went from the virus exploding and things looking kind of like apocalyptic to to this scene, which yeah. I guess does feel a bit weird in in the kind of general pacing of the storyline, but there we go.
1: There's there's a part of me that's glad they mention it because, you know, well, at least they're referring to the events that are also happening elsewhere at the moment. But then there's another part of me that goes, oh, wait, but now they've mentioned it. So they're aware that it is incredibly contagious and affects both people and machines. So how are both of these people fine?
0: Yeah, I guess it hasn't made it to Opal City yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he basically says, like, I have to bury this rock, which could be anything. I have to to bury this green radioactive rock, which which could be anything, on Mars. It's very important for the future. And Ted Knight is like, oh, you know what, it's cool. You don't have to tell me about it. I know you're doing it for the right reasons. And there's a moment of silence, and then Starman is like, oh, damn it, I can't lie to you. I'm a traitor. He
1: goes, I don't know why, but, oh, I'm a bad person. I'm a (sighs) bad... Again, I'm not... James Robinson is a good writer I've enjoyed comics by James Robinson before but this is clumsy to me damn you, I can't lie to you and I don't know why I'm evil it just, it's
0: clumsy, I think, in my opinion there's a, there's a great moment in Morrison's uh, run on Doom Patrol where there's a standalone issue with the beard hunter mm. who's a piss take of the Punisher because he, yeah. he, he steals beards and kills people and there's a bit at the end where to show how extremely uh aggressive and manly he is he uh, he takes out a pack of biscuits and breaks every biscuit individually and i've always <laughs> remembered that <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah so yeah he, he's a traitor he's a bad guy and now he basically
1: just tells ted knight everything how he accidentally awoke solaris's original evil programming and it wants to kill superman and Ted says, well, my Superman or yours? And he goes, well, both, they're the same thing. Keep up. <laughs> and then he says, and Solaris offered me something I couldn't refuse. Freedom from being Starman, because I don't like being Starman. And, oh, my God, get over yourself and grow up.
0: Yeah, and, and and Ted Knight, rightfully, is like, okay, I'm a little confused. What the hell's going on? And basically, it turns out that Starman's entire deal is that... He's, he's kind of pissed off that he never had a choice like he always had to be Starman and, uh, and Ted Knight says well why don't you quit and he's like I don't want to quit because if I quit I wouldn't have access to all the fame, money and women I get to enjoy as Starman basically
1: <sighs>
0: yep and
1: Ted says, so you don't like the work that goes with the rewards. So, yeah, you are a villain. All right, fair enough. And Starman's like, well, I'm going to kill you now because I've got everything I need from you. And oh, it won't break the timeline. Oh, no, but I can't because you're Starman and I'm Starman. And Ted says, oh, look, if there's evil in there and you've accepted it, can you just look inside and accept the good in you too?
0: <sighs> Uh, and he uh, and it, and and we have Starman holding um, uh, Ted Knight, elderly man, up by the neck, pointing the quavat at his face, and he's basically like, "Oh, you know, if you have to kill me, kill me," uh, uh, and uh, and and he and he can't, and yeah. and and he, he looks at Ted Knight, looks at the old Starman uniform, and uh, and then just flies off.
1: Holding the quavat in one hand and the kryptonite in the other. Might not be kryptonite. It's the kryptonite. And that's the end.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, <sighs> yeah, that's the end. Um, I
1: didn't really enjoy that one. i got to be honest.
0: I feel in the context of the trade, I enjoyed it a little more than the Green Lantern insertion. Because it was was at least a full issue.
1: Yes. Yeah, the fact we only get five pages of of Green Lantern. I don't know, mate. And I haven't read the rest of it for a while, but I feel like where we're going with this trade is the highs of the main series and the JLA issue written by Morrison and then the lows of the other stuff that probably doesn't need to be in there, but because it's in there, we're looking at it.
0: Yeah, we have to cover it. Um it's it's weird I, I i think it suffers for being included if i'm <clears> honest like um i imagine if you were collecting starman and you had more of an investment in the character then this works better as a standalone story where a weird random future version of a starman of starman turns up and you have this little encounter like I wonder if clunky as it is this massive exposition dump well it's basically I think that's a problem isn't it as you said it is a little it's a fact that he basically says I am a villain and this is why I am a villain and they talk in such kind of broad strokes about like I think you're a hero I'm not a hero I'm actually a villain yes you sound like a villain like, I'm probably being a little insulting, but it, that's kind of what it feels like.
1: And the fact that Starman's motivation boils down to, I'm lazy, but I want the chicks.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, it's it's tiring. <laughs>
0: it's... it's It's also weird because we've only just met the character of Starman. Like, we... Future starman, Literally, like, only in the previous issue of DC One Million have we been introduced to the character. Yeah. And... And and even then, he's only in a few panels. Like, we don't get a lot with him. So to then go to what is meant to be a big, heartfelt moment and and a big, like, switcheroo where you go, like, oh my God, he's evil. But, like, we we didn't get to know him in the first place. So it, it, it... It doesn't really feel like a twist, if that makes sense
1: at all. At all, and I know, I know James Robinson's run on Starman using Jack Knight as the main character was fairly critically acclaimed, I believe. I'm sure people really liked it, and I think I would have almost preferred it if Jack Knight had showed up and had a fight with the future Starman, maybe. And the expedition was done during a fight scene, because that's something comics can sometimes do quite well. That might have been more fun then. But, yeah, the way this is done, it's just a bit... eh. Yeah, it's... There's some nice moments, but it just doesn't really hold up as an issue read on its own to me.
0: And it's weird also. It's like we get later moments penned by Morrison with Starman. You know, mm. in the course of this, we, we we its weird in a way. We get shorter because mo- we just spent twenty-two pages with the character, you know, and and yet I feel some of those later bits, which we will see, are shorter, but maybe better in in, in a way like it, it's it's messy. It's very messy. Like I don't know. I am I'm, I'm very conflicted about it. It's it's unusual
1: yeah i do you know what knowing what we know about one million now and how morrison plotted all the issues and then the writers sort of had to hit hit that plot i think you can almost feel it in that one Mm. i wonder if maybe if if robinson had just been given the brief show evil show that future starman is evil show his motivations and have him meet Classic Starman. If that was all he'd been given, it would have been something different, but still served the same function. Perhaps,
0: yeah. That's maybe why it feels so weirdly clunky and paced. Because it's like, you know, we 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 just we glossed over it. Like that's like the quickest we've ever gone over an issue. Because yeah. that's kind of what it felt like. Like there wasn't there wasn't much to go into at all. And it's like you know you you have a a two page scene where they're just talking over coffee and it's like it's all talking about like very specific things but that don't matter to the story like going like oh my great grandfather found it and then oh my granddad and my mother were star were star men as well oh and there were things called Kleinsiders, like he's it going into such incredible detail and yet, it doesn't add anything to the story at all. Here's
1: my pitch for a different version of this one: is forget the whole. Yeah, you know, as I say, I don't know what was going on in the Starman book at the time. If this Deathbolt thing was a plot thread for the main Starman book, but scrap that. Just mm. have Future Starman show up and attack Ted, trying mm. to get this kryptonite. Jack shows up. The Starmen have a fight. Starman 1 million gets the upper hand. Ted comes between them. Ooh, so says, yes. no, don't kill him. Appeals to his best and that's, nature, And that's when Starman of the future starts to maybe have some kind of change of heart and just flies off with the kryptonite.
0: I certainly think he didn't need to basically say, I'm a villain and this is why I'm a villain. Yeah. Like, I don't think... And and also, like, this whole deal about the this this mysterious rock, which could be anything. It's kryptonite. Well... <laughs> Like again all plotted by Morrison is clearly very important to the core story but everything about it seems to happen like off panel off page Mm. like at the end of the first issue when Vandal Savage and Solaris are on Mars they're talking about digging up this thing like what do they call it the night fragment or whatever like digging it up yeah but again, we don't see it being dug up and we don't know what it is or why it was buried in the first place. And then we get this tie-in issue where Starman of the future is like, I really need that rock you have. And I'm like, but does Starman have a rock? Like, do <laughs> like how do we know he has a rock? Did that genuinely happen in the pages of Starman at some point? And did Morrison go like, oh, um, he picked up a cool meteorite at some point? Or did, was it just written in to say like, oh yeah, Ted Knight totally has a rock and I need it. It just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know,
1: I've read worse comics than this. I, obviously, we all have. I think we've even covered a worse comic than this in, on the podcast. Uh, I, I would say that main story from Secret Files and Origins 2 was probably worse than this. This is just so bland in my opinion. And I've got to be honest, the art doesn't really sell it that much for me too. Starman's costume, the colouring on his costume and the way they do the stars in his cape and everything is beautiful, but the rest of the art in the issue, the, the black and white segment I like, but everything else...
0: Eh. There's some there's some moody uh, inking on a few pages, which I think is quite nice. Hmm. Um, it's fine. I, I, I don't want to... You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be cruel. I don't, I don't want to crap over anyone. But it's, like, I think it's like, yeah, the story, the art, they're functional, but it's kind of like in service of what. I'm not really, I'm not really sure to be honest. It's, I think it's honestly
1: fairly typical of what happens when a writer is in the middle of a story and then suddenly has to shoehorn in a crossover issue.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's it's very unusual and again I'm not sure whether reading it as part of an omnibus edition like reading a massive collected edition where every single issue is included I don't know whether that would work better or whether it would feel just as out of place then this is kind of like you mentioned that coming up we have some incredible highs and some lows in DC 1 million um I think there's some wonderful like truly wonderful kind of JLA moments coming up and then there's also bits that feel from a kind of just greater plotting and storytelling perspective like a bit messy for lack of a better word and I do wonder if it was a bit overly ambitious on Morrison's part because it's like they're trying to pack so much in and it doesn't still doesn't seem to be enough space even with even with these tie-in issues
1: yeah yeah, like I'm looking forward to covering issues two and three of DC One Million and the JLA One Million issue, but the Superman, the Man of Tomorrow, as you say, I'm I don't particularly rate. I think it's some interesting ideas, but I don't know about the execution. And there's a Batman story in here as well that isn't actually listed as to which issue it's from. I'm assuming <laughs> it's either Detective Comics One Million or Batman One Million, but it's left off the um, the indicia uh, of it, as it were, on the contents page of my trade so I'm not 100% sure which one it is, but um, I have no memory of that either, and I'm not really looking forward to it.
0: Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, honestly, holding this thing as a trade, like, it's such a weirdly, it's such a weird book. <laughs> like, it's so weird because hmm. there are, as I said, this big lost moment in the, in JLA continuity. I was so happy to find it. I still enjoy it. I still like it a lot because I'm like, there's a lot of good in here. And I'm like, well, more Morrison, more Morrison JLA. That works for me. That makes me very happy. But it's like, there's a lot of chuff. Like, there's a lot of, like, really weird and bad moments. And I don't think there's any other book in this series where I'd be trying to work out what the worst chapter is. And it's a close close call, you know.
1: And, uh, oh, yeah, we've got the Resurrection Man 1 million issue as well, haven't we, in there?
0: Yeah, that at least is I think that's one of the better tyings. I, I I
1: remember enjoying it actually, yeah, but again, I haven't read it for ages, so who knows, might be wrong.
0: I think the it's really a race to the bottom between maybe the Starman chapter and the Superman y man of tomorrow kind of chapter, I think, as to which is if not outright bad, but just completely pointless.
1: Yeah maybe the Batman one as well though as I say oh, I, I, can't, yeah. I, I have it's no tough. memory of that at all
0: but <laughs> it's rare that we're so negative it
1: is it is but you know this is what this weird
0: trade has done to us do you do you, it is is that Secret Files and Origins story still the worst chapter we've read
1: I want to say it's weird that is not a good story um it's got some very good moments in it that I really enjoy. There's some fun in there, but it is not a good story overall. That Starman one, again, there's one or two moments in it that I think had done well, but I wouldn't say it was particularly bad. It's just a bit clunky and, you know, all of which, middling.
0: All of which could maybe be forgiven, if it was an integral part of the story, like if it really, really added something, yeah. But it doesn't. It's very unusual. It's very don't unusual. not
1: anything at all.
0: No. I'm I'm flicking through the upcoming kind of Batman tie-in, and it's like I have no idea why that was. Well, I guess I do know why. But it's
1: from Detective Comics One Million. I've just looked that up.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, there we go. I just. Oh, I don't know. Sorry, everyone. This is probably like a very infuriating commentary, but. Uh... Yeah, it's odd. It's a very odd beast. I'm looking forward to getting back into some proper one million kind of next well, issue though.
1: Our our next episode, yeah, is, is DC one million issue two, isn't it? And yeah. I'm I'm very much looking forward to getting getting back into that and the main thrust of the story. Oh yeah, no,
0: and and I'm 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 looking at it now and I'm like, this is good. You know, this is good. I look forward to reading it. It's gonna be great. Hopefully. It's gonna be great, PJ. <laughs> Well, I, I guess uh, a very odd episode. Everyone, we're, we're sorry if it was a little different to what what you you've come to expect normally. But um, I mean, do, do you think there's much more to add, PJ?
1: Only that I apologise. I guess we can't be enthusiastic every week.
0: No, I'd like to think we've done a pretty good pretty good job of being positive and in, and, and enthusiastic on, on on most issues. Yeah, and you know, I don't like to put down work like this because. You know,
1: we as creative types ourselves, we recognise that sometimes you can try your best with a story, and it's just not going to work. And it's not, you know, the the creators involved in Starman One Million are all excellent creators who've done excellent work. This just unfortunately isn't their best.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, pe- people people are, are are more than the sum of their kind of worst moment, I suppose. Like um, I've read an issue of. Young Blood, written by Eric Stevenson, which I think might be one of the worst comics I've ever re- I've ever read in, in my entire life, and and yet Eric Stevenson, of course, has written uh, some ex- incredible incredible work. No No uh, Nowhere Men is fantastic, you know, absolutely fantastic. So we all have bad days sometimes.
1: And I you know I read Chuck Austin's entire run on Uncanny X Men, which is one of the worst things I've ever ever read full stop, and yet he was also one of the writers and producers on the excellent She-Ra cartoon series that Netflix put out within the last couple of years. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh.
0: That's interesting. Um, I've read... I read... It's not a competition, John. I read Ultimates 3 by Jeff Loeb. We all read Ultimates 3 by Jeff Loeb. And I've also... I must statistically have read something good by Jeff Loeb. Um, Long Halloween? I haven't read that, actually. Oh, um, the Marvel Colours books, Daredevil Yellow, Spider-Man Blue. Oh, there Hulk you go. Grey. I haven't read that either. But, I'll, you know, there you go. You see, there are there are good things out there. And there's Ultimates 3, which is abysmal. <laughs> it's <laughs> actually one of the worst things. Oh, wow. It's all coming out now, isn't it? Like, I'm honestly trying to... Yeah, Ultimates 3 might be a contender for worst comic I've ever I've ever read. It, it is really, really bad. It's really rough, yeah. I'll yeah. Like PJ, it's beginning. Like, I'm, I'm feeling the dark pleasure that comes from being and, a hater. <laughs> and just so that
1: nobody thinks that the, everything Morrison does is put on a pedestal, I've read
0: Final Crisis, and I hate Final Crisis. <laughs> and I've read um, a good chunk of Green Lantern, which is, I think... Quite impenetrable, bordering on not very good, which is. But it shows
1: every single creative person out there, be they a writer or an artist or whatever, will at some point put out bad content. Mm. It's just the nature
0: of the beast. Not me, obviously. No, but every other. You're the outlier, PJ, so (laughs) that's why. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, but we all grow. we all grow. we look back on our mistakes and and we get better. Yeah, or we double down. I try not to do that. That just feels mean. um well, on that on that on that final note of overwhelming positivity, uh, it, it was still fun to talk uh, talk with you pJ even even if it wasn't uh, they can't all be winners. Um, <laughs> i sh- I should say a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. And to Elliot Redd for composing and performing our wonderful theme tune, Justice. And if you enjoy hearing PJ and I uh, be both positive and negative, uh, you can find us on social media. Uh, our, our handles are in the description below. Uh, PJ, is there anything you'd like to to, to add or shout about? or I, don't know. I
1: am going to give uh, one of my occasional shout-outs to my other podcast, The Measure of a Fan, in which uh, myself the comedian matt troy two massive star trek nerds and elliot red the composer of our theme tune who hasn't watched much star trek at all are watching all of star trek in chronological order we just finished our first season and that show has gone hi- on hiatus for a few weeks now or before we start the second season of enterprise Ooh. so now is a great time to catch up on it uh, if you would like to and i think it's a fun little show
0: and uh, that is that available where wherever you get your podcasts pj Usually,
1: usually, I'm, I'm having a fight with Apple about one of our episodes. But usually,
0: oh, oh, was it was it too was it too explicit? Was there too much was
1: there too much swearing? For, I perhaps? don't know why they haven't published it yet. To be honest, I'm having that fight with them first of all. But oh, weird, right? Uh, uh well, yeah. What should, what
0: should I shout about? Um what about your other podcasts or your many comics or your games uh well we did um, a big thank you to anyone listening who got involved but we did uh just uh, just last uh, tuesday we or wednesday we, uh, we 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 did it we funded um we funded bread rolls the expansion Ooh. to sandwich masters so uh that's very exciting so um i'm now uh, talking to uh you know the printers and uh Trying not to lose my mind about international shipping and the, the greater global crisis that has developed in recent years around getting things into and out of countries. So, thanks, world. That's fun, um, but no, that's it's it's good. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm currently um, I'm currently working on uh, getting Ace of None finally getting Ace of None out into the world because that was meant to be done last year and got delayed and uh, obviously PJ you've been very supportive and we've been talking about that in secret uh, Secrets uh, Although it is out there if you want to go have a look go to ace-of-none.com or go to bigpunchstudios.com to find out what it's all about and get involved it's already interesting and uh, I'm also trying to get the second super collected hardback edition of Afterlife Ink Inc into uh, into reality I'm trying to make that happen so we did Volumes 1, 2, and 3 as one big hardback called The Book of Life back in 2014. And now uh, we've, book, we've got Volumes uh, 4, 5, and 6, and we're trying to, get, trying to get those into a big matching hardback called The Book of Death. And um, uh, The Book of Death is going to be about 448 pages or something like that. So trying to... F- trying to find a way to print it that doesn't absolutely bankrupt me because apparently once it gets beyond a certain size it becomes it becomes quite expensive so yeah we we shall see what we can do there
1: but look out for it folks because the book of life looks lovely on a bookshelf Uh, i've got my copy in this very room that i'm recording in right now and i feel like i will have to get a book of death to go next to that and just really
0: collapse that shelf under the weight Thank you. Well, the first one does weigh about two kilos, so uh, <laughs> uh, the second one will be slightly more.
1: Yeah, I read uh, my small paperback copies because, you know, Book of Life, a bit unwieldy, but it looks lovely on a shelf.
0: Uh, uh, that, that's the problem, isn't it? You get to these like big luxury collections, in any any type of luxury collection, and you're like, well, it looks yeah. great, but it's completely impractical to, to hold or read.
1: I've only got one of those big marvel hardback omnibuses and that's the amazing fantasy omnibus which collects all 15 issues of that from the 60s so it's quite small by the standards of their omnibuses but that's hard enough to read i don't need more books like that I i'll think... buy more books like that because they are beautiful but
0: are they the kind of gray hardbacks that come in like a slip cover or am i thinking no this one? is the
1: bigger one uh ah. so they print them in a bigger size and it collects more issues and it's got like marvel omnibus in red on the top of the spine and then the spine is black with the name of the book
0: Ooh. and i was asking someone the other day uh how big can a hardback go like at what point does binding the number of pages become an issue and somebody said that the biggest one they own is the final crisis omnibus hardback Jeez. which is over a thousand pages wow
1: wow i mean does it able to
0: Lift it. I know. What does it say when you have a book which is probably wider than it is tall? <laughs> like that's insane, right? Yep, yeah. yeah,
1: I've seen some of those big omnibus. I know Marvel put out an Acts of Vengeance one, which collected every Act of Vengeance, and that was big enough. I was like, it looks beautiful, but I, I don't know what I'd do with it.
0: Oh God, which one was Acts of Vengeance?
1: That's um, late eighties, early nineties. Basically, all the heroes swapped villains for a, a-, a couple of months.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> I have been a little tempted to track down the um, the complete Onslaught saga, which comes in, like, three omnibus kind of, like, phone book editions. Um, oh, jeez. I know, I know. That was like... Um, Om- uh, Onslaught was basically, like, that was when I was getting into yeah. weird American comics, as I thought of them at the time. So I have a bit of a soft spot for Onslaught, like, as as 90s as it is.
1: Yes. No, I, I agree. I agree. I did have, when they put out the smaller trades, I think it was six volumes, I had volume zero, which was some of the background material, and then, like, randomly volume two. And then I couldn't get the volumes anymore, so I sold them. But <laughs> if you want to get a complete collection of graphic novels, folks, and you want them to all match, you've got to get in there quick, because these <coughs> things don't tend to stay in
0: print in the same edition for very long. No, no. Well, as I mean, as evidenced by the fact that... Um even on this podcast, we have we have different editions of yeah some of the trades we're holding. In fact, what's the cover of your trade of DC One Million or JLA One Million?
1: Uh, it, it DC One Million. It doesn't say JLA. I think the image is the same. So it's the JLA at the front, and then like some red CGI microbe things, technological virus things and then five members of Justice Legion A sort of looming large over the back of them and then it just has the number 1 million and
0: written underneath that DC 1 million. Oh yeah and mine just says JLA, the world's greatest superheroes There you go. Anyway, on that uh, delightful note, uh, a more rambling episode than usual, but uh, it's been fun nonetheless. Uh, well, we had to
1: give him that content, even with a slim issue to review.
0: <laughs> I know, I know, we're we're, we're nothing if not professional. Um, <laughs> but PJ, uh, you know, um, you know, the episode may have been a bit different, but uh, the talent remains the same. Would you would you please demonstrate how you end an episode? I will. This is the end of the episode.